So how do you close out the year and ring in the new year? What do you do? Do you curl up on the porch at your house with a blanket and watch your neighbors shoot fireworks? You curl up on the sofa with a bucket of kettle corn and watch Sleepless in Seattle? Do you curl up in the recliner with a bucket of wings and watch some football? Do you curl up at the table with a platter of collards and some cornbread and chow down? Amen. Do you curl up on a seat on the church bus on your way to Atlanta, Georgia with 65,000 other young people to worship Jesus Christ? Yeah. Who who all went to Passions Conference this week? Just stand up. Just stand up where you are. I want our folks to see you. Some back row, come on, my youngest daughter, you can stand up. All right. So, okay, y'all can sit down, I won't embarrass you. So, really, 65,000 kids at Mercedes-Benz, 18 to 25-year-olds. Uh, 65,000 of them at Mercedes-Benz Arena in, in Atlanta. And I, I, I stayed up with them as I was streaming, live streaming the thing. I stayed up past midnight, I watched the fireworks, and then like 1230 Man, it was just too much singing. I was done. I I just needed to go to bed. But it was funny. I had this moment somewhere in that 30 minutes where I was like, all right, it's too loud. They're dancing around, blah, 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 blah. And it was this moment where I caught myself and went, man, you are like a whitewashed tomb, Dal. I I cannot believe how arrogant and ignorant you're being right now that there's something you don't like about the music. When 65,000 young people are worshiping Jesus right now at 1230. It's an amazing thing. And the fruit of what will happen from those few days in Atlanta is, is amazing. It's amazing. So some of them curled up on the bus and went to Atlanta. Some people curled up with a million other people on a street corner in New York City where you can't go to the bathroom for about seven hours as you wait for a disco ball to drop from a tower at midnight. Some people have been at Times Square in New York City on their bucket list of things that they want to do on on a New Year's Eve night. But maybe that trip is too expensive or too expansive for you, and maybe you just really like the freedom of being able to go to the bathroom, you know, when you need to go to the bathroom. So if so, then I have some other options for you to go watch some things drop and celebrate the New Year, okay? You can head to Yuma, Arizona and watch the iceberg lettuce drop. That's right. Big, huge replica of a head of lettuce drops at midnight for you to enjoy. And the best part is the tagline that Yuma uses with their celebration. Let us celebrate. That's nice. (laughs) If Yuma's too far, then you can stop a few hours east back on your way in Flagstaff where you can go to the Great Pinecone Drop. And the great thing about the Pinecone Drop is if you're not a night owl, they drop it at 10 o'clock and at midnight. So you got two options if you need to go to bed. So that's, that's kind of good. That's kind of good. Maybe you want to go to Plymouth, Wisconsin. They have the Sartori Big Cheese Drop. And the best part of this is the first 250 people in get free gift bags of cheese. That's worth the trip right there, man. Free cheese is fantastic. Or maybe that's too cheesy for you, and you just want to head north, not far from here, and east over North Carolina for the flea drop. Yeah, that's right, the flea drop. It is a three-foot, 30-pound flea 
named Jasper, made out of wood and wire and a bunch of other stuff, and they dropped Jasper at midnight in Eastover. Bless. Maybe you really want to be spiritual, though, and you're going to keep it, oh, little town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, that is. And what do they drop in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania? Well, they drop a 400-pound peeps chick. Yeah. A 400-pound replica of a marshmallow baby chick. That's what they drop. Now, can you imagine if that thing was really made out of marshmallow and the guy holding the cable dropped it? There would be marshmallow all over those people. I got them all day. (laughs) Thanks, Luke. That extra one made it. No matter what you see drop on New Year's Eve, even if it's just a couple of thumbs in your mouth, no matter what it is that you do at the end of the year and the beginning of the year, none of those things are more important than how your life begins and ends. Now, when we say your life beginning and ending, we're not talking about, you know, location. We're not talking about the the hospital that you were born in or, or the city and state that you will live in when you die. No, we're talking about the definition of your life. How does your life begin and end? And what does that even mean? Well, let's see if we can find out. The Apostle Paul is finishing his letter To the folks at Philippi in Philippians chapter 4, verse 23, he closes it out with these words, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. We know a little bit about spirit, don't we? Hopefully most of us have just had a little bit of Christmas spirit here, there, and yonder. Maybe your BFF is is a kindred spirit with you. You often say your cousin Eddie is a free spirit. You know, we know the idea of of spirit, and, and hey, we got spirit. Yes, we do. We got spirit. How about you? I thought somebody might take me up on it, but it's all right. We know a little bit about spirit, but but Paul is talking about something completely different here. He's he's talking about something when he was writing to to the church in Rome and, and Ephesus and Corinth. He called it the inner man, the inner person. Scottish theologian John Eadie put it this way, it's the portion of our nature which is not identified by the senses. It does not consist of nerve, muscle, and organic form, as does the outer man. In other words, it's, it's not something that we can see. It's not the outside. It's, it's the inside. It's, it's what's in our heart and our soul and our mind. It's our moral personality. It's our emotional personality. It's who you really, really are. I was working on my my sermon this week, and our brother Bob Mikowski sent me a great text from his daughter, Melody, and, and she gave me permission to use one of the sentences in her text, but it was about social media. It was about looking at, at, at a life of, of using social media too much and, and paying attention to social media too much. You know, social media is fantastic. It does some amazing things. I mean, even just here in our church, if it's your week to, to work in the nursery or extended session, man, social media is fantastic. You know, you put a little note on there and and somebody takes your place. So social media does amazing 
things. But social media can also be a place where an unhealthy desire is there to be noticed, to be recognized, to be appreciated, to have attention drawn to us, to have attention drawn to the outside. And sometimes that attention turns into an addiction. This is one of the things that Melody said in in her thoughts on social media. I was comparing my life to other people's highlight reels. It's very true. See, we, we are a culture like that. From clothing to cars to Facebook to Twitter to the alumni newsletter to the church newsletter, we, we want people to see our highlight reels and we, don't want, we want to watch other people's highlight reels. We are a culture that, that is overtly obsessed with the outer person, with the outside. And guess whose culture was just like that? The Philippians. And guess who else's culture was just like that? The Romans and the Corinthians and the Ephesians and the Philistines and the Babylonians and the Huns and the Chinese and the Japanese, the Australians, the Madagascans. You know, all the way back even to the garden, Adam and Eve, their culture was just like that. See, our sinful human nature pushes us, presses us to be consumed with the outside, to pay attention to the outer person and almost ignore the inner person. Now, don't take that too far. Decent hygiene, decent clothes, decent makeup, good things. Keep, keep up the good work with those things. But, but on the flip side of that, life is hard and life is painful and life is difficult. And life is full of moments of stress and depression, of tragedy, of trial, of tribulation and trouble. And because life is like that, we we have to remember that of all the good that social media or any media might be able to do, at the end of the day, that media is not designed to truly recognize your soul. This past week at the Passion Conference that our Yo Pros went to, one of the speakers was Ravi Zacharias. And Ravi told a story that I think just beautifully and very intensely illustrates this. He told a story about how his daughter sometime here in, in recent years was, was having a, just a crazy day. And at one point in the day, she just said out loud, I've lost my mind. Ever been there? And five-year-old Jude, her little boy, said, Mommy, that's okay, but don't lose your heart because I'm in there. And Ravi went on to to bring the attention to the fact that that's what it means to be in Christ. Jesus Christ has, has made a way for you, Christian, to be in the very heart of God. And God cannot lose his mind. And God cannot lose his heart. Therefore, God cannot lose That's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you're filtering that picture to post on social media, hoping that that somebody might look at you or your spouse or your kids and think that y'all are funny or or pretty or or creative or amazing, just, just know that those likes and those emojis and those comments are not 
designed to reach your soul. They can't because the only thing that can reach the very heart of your soul is the one who created your soul. Only God can hug you at the place you needed to be hugged the most. So, how much does God like your soul? What kind of emoji would God send out to to speak of his love for you? What kind of comment would capture and and prove the love that God has for you? Jesus gives it in two words. John 3.16, he gave. He gave his only begotten son. He gave, he gave, he gave. That's exactly why Paul's closing his letter the way he is. See, he knows the Philippians, they're just like us. He knows what they need the most is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows that what their spirit needs the most is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In their inner person, what they need the most is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I will gloriously confess my error Your bulletin still says 2019. Appreciate the grace of that being showed to me this morning. (laughs) It's not 2019, no time traveling going on, but it is the beginning of 2020. And so what you need the most at the beginning of 2020 is the exact same thing that you're going to need on New Year's Eve. And it is not a better diet. It's not a better workout routine. It's not a better spouse or better kids or better conditions at work. It's not a better government. It's not better health. All of those things are fantastic, and and maybe God in his mercy might bring us all those things. But what we need the most is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, you may not feel it now, and you might reject it. You might reject it as as hokey, religion, or or sentimental, or foolish. But what you need at the beginning of 2020 is the same thing you'll need at the end of 2020, and that is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Eternal life, true satisfying help for daily life, life beginning and ending, all of that happens in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of Jesus blesses It cheers, it encourages, it comforts, it transforms, and it energizes. That there's just nothing like the grace of Jesus. hundred years ago, F.B. Meyer put it this way, it's illumination for the soul, love for the heart, strength for the mind, purity for the character, help in every time of need, direction in all perplexity and difficulty. All these are included in the word grace. He goes on. It was impossible for the Apostle Paul to know in detail all that his friends might be passing through amid the temptations and perils of Philippi. But he wished that always and everywhere they might be conscious that the grace of the Lord Jesus beset them behind and before encompass their going out and coming in, enwrap them in their lying down and rising up, canopied them with skies opening Godward, and was their shield and their exceeding great reward. Listen, I'm just like Paul. It is impossible for me to know everything that's going on in your life. 
Impossible. No matter how many phone calls, voicemails, text messages, emails, or how many times you stop me in the hall or at Walmart, it's impossible for me to know all the things that will be happening in your life. But like Paul, I can highly commend to you the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ will always be better than your pastor. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ will always be better than your spouse and your kids and your friends and your politicians and anyone else in the universe. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is unlike anything in the universe. And so Paul said, man, I I hope you get this in your spirit. That's, That's where I want it. Down deep where you need it the most. But how does Jesus do this? How does Jesus bring us this this kind of grace? But it all goes back to understanding those two words. He gave. He he gave. And and what do those two words mean? When Paul's writing to folks at Ephesus, he I I feel like in in surgeon-like precision clearly gives us the best answer to what he gave is all about. Listen to how it reads. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, And were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And that's not all. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that. In the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Can I just say that? What that means is, is so that every new year, no matter what happened in the previous year, if you are in Christ, you have this unbelievable picture of the kindness of God that will rescue you again and again and again and will one day rescue you forever. And then Paul says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Grace is not just a a religious word. Grace is, is not just a sentimental word. Grace is not just a feeling, and it's not just an emotion. Grace is the stunning, amazing, undeserved kindness of God in and through Jesus Christ. Grace is the only word that can ever describe the marvelous majesty of the miracle of the mercy of those two words he gave. He gave. It's it's all grace. There's no other way to describe it. There's no other way to think about it. There's no other way to believe it. You see, God gave because we were dead. We're dead in our sins. 
We weren't in purgatory. We were dead in our sins. And God gave because we had no hope. And God gave because we could not give to ourselves. And God gave so that we would receive. John Reisinger uses the imagery of a shepherd and his sheep to describe the weight of God's gift. Listen to this. Imagine you are a four-legged sheep caught in a thicket from which you cannot free yourself. You are cold, hungry, thirsty, and your throat is sore from bleeding. The more you struggle to get free, the more the briars dig into your flesh and cause the blood to flow. Finally, in utter despair, you resign yourself to your pitiful situation, quit struggling, and prepare to die. If, in that most hopeless situation, you heard the familiar voice of a shepherd calling your name, what would you do? I love this answer. You would cry, ba-ba, as loudly as you possibly could. That's what you do. He takes us into this a little deeper. If you are caught in a thicket of sin and cannot get loose, and the harder you try to get free, the more you fail because the bonds of sin get stronger, and you are hungry, and you are tired, and you are thirsty, then there is good news. There is a gracious shepherd calling your name. Cry out to him. Cry, ba, ba, as loud as you can. Tell him how sick you are of sin and its awful consequences. Tell him how totally helpless you are and how desperately you need his grace and his power. He will be at your side in a moment. He will free you from the thicket of sin, bind up your wounds, give you bread and water, and put you on his shoulder and carry you safely back to the fold. And then he takes us even deeper. The only person who will not cry out, bah, bah, is the person who either does not believe he is caught in a thicket of sin, but imagines he is totally free, or the person who loves the sin despite the misery it brings. So what about you? Have you heard the voice of God. Have you cried out to him? Have you seen his his gift that he's given to you? Have you seen the gift that he gave so that you might be set free? Have you repented of your sin, your rebellion, and, and, and received the salvation that only comes from Jesus and the kind of salvation that makes it possible that, that no power of hell and no scheme of man, man could ever pluck you out of the very heart of God. Many years ago, I was having lunch with a friend of mine, and, and he just made a comment. He said, you know how oftentimes in your sermons you will say something about how, how we were sinful and rebellious before we were saved, how we were rebellious against God, rebels against God before we were saved? He said, you know, I got saved when I was a kid. I don't remember being rebellious. And I said something to him like, well, you know, the Bible says that, that we're really rebellious in our sin from birth. I mean, after all, you, you don't have to teach a, a two-year-old how to throw a tantrum. 
And I said, and, and even if we can't remember our rebellion, it doesn't mean that it wasn't there. I mean, how many of us really remember lots of things from when we were a little kid anyway? I came across an article this week that, that kind of speaks to the same idea. And it, it speaks to it asking uh, these two questions. The first is this. If you were saved when you were six years old, can you feel the greatness of the sinfulness from which you were rescued? If you're saved when you're six, can you really, can you really feel it? And then it asks the question in a different way. If you have no recollection of ever being an unbeliever, can you really sing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me? The article's great. There's a, there's a link to it on the end of my sermon notes online. But, but here's just one answer to that question. The memory of what we were before we were saved may fade. But the memory of yesterday, oh, that's fresh. Yesterday's pride, yesterday's selfishness, yesterday's sulking, yesterday's self-pity, yesterday's anger. Yeah, those things are there. And that's exactly why Paul is signing his letter off this way. He wanted the Philippians and us to know and to feel the, the weight of this truth. That in our lives, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, all of it is found in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of it. Why? Because every yesterday is a reminder that the only way we could possibly be saved is by grace, through grace. That's the only way that we can be made right with God. John Piper goes on in that article and says this, the most vivid and moving picture of our sin is not the memory of lying in our own vomit after an overdose, but the picture of the Son of God nailed to the cross. The person who was saved at six years old is at no disadvantage in seeing the magnitude and horror of his own sin from which God saved him at six. Why? Well, the picture of that sin is not some scrapbook photo of a grumpy six-year-old face. The picture of that sin is blood running down the face of Jesus. Were you saved from a, a life of, of immorality and addiction or, or some other sin? Praise God. We rejoice with you in your salvation. But remember... Your amazing grace is not just 25 years ago in vomit. Your amazing grace is yesterday. Were you saved after growing up in a family that went to church all the time and, and basically you were an okay kid, just kind of occasionally grumpy? Praise God for your salvation. We rejoice with you. But remember, your amazing grace is not just from growing up in a good church-going family. Your amazing grace is from yesterday. Paul closes out this letter on purpose this way. He wants his friends to know, listen, you, you really need the grace of Jesus. It's, it's what you need most. And so he, he kind of prays this at the end of his closing because he wants them to see that without the grace of Jesus, they are sunk. They've got no hope. But with the grace of Jesus, with the grace of Jesus, he knew that they would sing through tears. 
He knew that they would pray their way through bitterness. They would serve their way through loneliness. They would read their Bible through confusion. They would work through their stubbornness by by giving financially. They would even find their way through the valley of the shadow of death. How? Grace of the Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus. There's there's nothing like it in all the universe. The grace of the Lord Jesus is the beginning and the ending of any life of any Christian, and it fills up and defines all the days in between. Gloria Furman is a writer and an editor. She lives in the Middle East with her husband and their four kids. She wrote a book. This is the title, Treasuring Christ When Your Hands Are Full, Gospel Meditations for Busy Moms. I love that title. In that book, she makes this graciously blunt statement. In the midst of a venting session with a dear friend, I confess that I felt I'd forgotten the Lord since I became a mother. For the good of your own heart and your own soul, just just ask yourself that question. Have you forgotten the Lord? Maybe it was when you graduated from high school. Maybe it was when you went off to college. Maybe it was when you started working. Maybe it was when you got married. Maybe it was when you became a parent or a grandparent or maybe when you retired. Maybe it was when things changed at work. Maybe it was when someone that you love died. Maybe it was when that pastor or that church upset you. Maybe it was when your health got bad. Maybe you haven't missed a Sunday in 30 years. You're in church all the time, but you've forgotten the Lord, and you're just going through the motions. Or maybe this is your first Sunday in church in 10 years, and you know you've forgotten the Lord. Or maybe your story is different. No matter what any of our stories are today, what all of us need the most is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what your spirit needs the most. It's what your heart needs the most. It's what your mind needs the most. Gloria goes on to say this. Jesus fulfilled God's holy law, was crucified in our place, rose victorious from the dead, and is reigning at the Father's right hand. Jesus satisfied God's wrath against sin and purchased us from the slavery of sin. By faith, we receive Jesus' perfect righteousness, and he creates in us new hearts that are prone to love him. Listen to this. Even when you don't feel this is true about yourself, it is. Even when you imagine that your life is hell and you have forgotten that you've been transferred into the kingdom of God's marvelous light, you're still his forever. You can be sure that nothing will separate you from God's love for you in Christ Jesus, your Lord. How can you be sure? You can be sure because on a cross on a hill far away, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ purchased and guaranteed the way for you to be sure. But we live in an uncertain world, don't we? An uncertain world where we we never know what's going to happen. A world full of impeachment and, and drone attacks and cancer cells. 
a world full of social media posts that go ignored and not acknowledged and not liked. So how can we begin 2020 with any notion that there is a shrivel of hope that everything is going to be okay? Well, there's only one way. And I really mean that. There's only one way. Whatever you want from your pastor, whatever you want from your parents, whatever you want from your politicians, whatever you want from any other person or any other situation in your life, the only shrivel of hope for your soul is in Christ. But oh my goodness, what hope it is. D. Lloyd-Jones put it this way. Whatever may happen in life or in death, whatever may take place in any conceivable situation or circumstances, whatever may be your lot, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ will be sufficient. It will hold you, it will sustain you, it would even enable you to rejoice in tribulation. It will strengthen you, establish you, hold you, keep you, answer your every need, and take you through. And then this, ultimately, it will present you faultless, perfect, in glory, in the presence of God. Your spouse can't do that. Your kids can't do that. Your 401k can't do that. There is nothing and no one that can present you in front of the presence of God, faultless and without blame. Nothing but the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we proclaim it. That's why we sing it. That's why we speak it. That's why we keep saying, and may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you and with your spirit. And all the people said, amen. And all the people said, amen. And by the grace of the spirit of Jesus, all the people said, amen.